John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. And uh, while you turn there, I, I just want to say one of the things I love about our prayer ministry and the way that we do that is unspoken prayer requests. Uh, you know, <clears throat> people don't, people don't ask unspoken prayer requests for traveling mercies. They don't ask unspoken prayer requests for, for God to bless their food. Those things we'll say out loud. And uh, when a person gives an unspoken prayer request, you can mark her down that there's something, something in their life that they're desiring the help of the Lord about. And, you know, when you just say prayer requests out loud, I mean, unless you're one of those people that writes it down and takes record of it, you'll never convince me that you'd remember every person that gave an unspoken prayer request. But by doing little cards the way that we do, uh, when they're taken and when they're faithfully prayed over, uh, we can have confidence when we mention those unspoken prayer requests. Hey, somebody's praying for that. It's not been forgotten about. Somebody is lifting that up to the Lord. That's an encouragement to my heart. John chapter number 12. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 11. John chapter number 12, verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone, against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always." Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Lord, I do pray for these requests that have been given, that you would answer them according to thy will. And we've asked for things tonight, Lord, that are bigger than what we can can change and, and can transform and can manipulate. Lord, we've asked for things tonight that though we may try to fix them, we'd make a mess of it, Lord. And things tonight that we don't even know what a solution would look like. We just know that we need your help. And I pray that you would meet these requests in a way that would, Lord, both answer them but also bring glory unto you. And I pray, Lord, also tonight for the preached word of God. Lord, I know the word of God is is inspired, it's inerrant, it's preserved, it's powerful. But, Lord, ere we open our hearts tonight, if we're not willing to do that, then as as precious and perfect as the word of God is, it cannot affect us and it cannot transform us. So I pray we would have open, receptive hearts tonight that you might receive glory from our obedience and the humility of our spirit. We'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we approach John chapter number 12, I was thinking about the gospel of John earlier, and very often we will 
give copies of the Gospel of John to people that we're witnessing to, people that are just newly saved. And uh, I think that's a good practice. You know, the book of John was the only book in the Bible that's written expressly to lost people. Uh, it's written that men might believe on the Son of God. It's written to lost people. And uh, But I've often thought if, if, if a lost person was like I am with a book, I, I can't just open, start at the beginning. I'm, I'm too impatient. I have to skip around and jump here and jump there. And, and if a lost person came to John chapter number 12, how baffled they would be when they happen upon this supper party that's taking place in Bethany. There is the statement made both in the opening verses of this chapter, but then more particularly in verse number nine, where it speaks about this man named Lazarus. And then almost as though it is a mere statement of record, because in fact it is, if, if you've read the word of God, it just simply says Lazarus also whom he had raised from the dead. And don't you imagine if you're a lost person who has skipped ahead to chapter 12, that that verse and that statement, that phrase would leap out onto the page and arrest your attention. Here is a man that is not just a believer. Here is a man that has not just experienced some miracle. Here is a man that has not just had his eyes open or strength given to his legs or or his mouth being given the freedom to speak. But here is a man that has literally pierced beyond the veil of death has dwelt in that state and has been recalled back by the power of the word of Jesus Christ. And so it is no wonder when we come to this chapter that in in verse number nine, we're told that when this supper party was taking place and uh, you'll notice God's a southerner because they had supper. Amen. And uh, they didn't have dinner. They had supper. And, uh, you know, when this party's taking place, when this gathering is taking place, uh, the Bible says that much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. You couldn't keep quiet where Jesus was. And the Bible says they came not for Jesus' sake only, and notice this phrase, but that they might see Lazarus also. In other words, they knew Jesus was there. They were interested in seeing Jesus and and hearing from Jesus. But no small factor in their presence there, in what drew them, was they desired to see the divine miracle and power that had been manifested in the life of Lazarus, that this man who once was dead was now sitting there living and breathing and bearing testimony to the power of Christ. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, that they might see Lazarus also. If we're going to understand the impact of this passage, we must not just observe it like that lost person that might happen upon it, but we need to understand a little bit about the context of what's happened here. And when we do, I think we'll see how this applies to our life. So who is this man by the name of Lazarus? Well, him and his sisters, Mary and Martha, as our text said, lived in the town of Bethany. But their relationship with Jesus was not one of uh, casual acquaintanceship. When we read the record of Scripture, these seem to be some of the closest friends that the Lord Jesus had. 
These were people whose home he had frequented often. These were people who felt as though their relationship was on such intimate standing that they could even sort of maybe in a in a tender, in a timid way, uh, sort of make bold statements to him as Mary and Martha do when Lazarus dies. And they said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. That's really a statement of accusation. You wouldn't make that statement to someone that you did not know very well. And so it's obvious there is a context to this passage of Scripture. And the relationship that Lazarus had with Jesus seems to all center around this miracle of his being raised from the dead. This, of course, if you're a student of the Bible, you already know this is recorded in the previous chapter, John chapter number 11. And if we were to sum up Lazarus's experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, I think we could make four statements about what Christ had been and done in his life that shaped the testimony of who he was. Turn with me back to chapter 11. I want you to notice this with me. Uh, verse number one begins this way. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John, of course, recording this many later, many years later, is referencing the event that takes place in the very next chapter. And listen to how these two women sent unto the Lord Jesus to communicate Lazarus' sickness. It says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, He whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 4 says, Now, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Verse 5 leaves us no doubt here. It says, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let me say number one tonight. This is a man that was loved by Jesus. He had experienced the transformative power of the love of God. This was not somebody that just had a casual acquaintanceship with the Lord Jesus. This is not someone who had just in passing interacted with him. But this was someone who apprehended and sensed and knew deeply the fact that Jesus Christ cared for him, loved him, was interested in him, was invested in him. So much so that when this man is sick, the Lord Jesus invokes that love through the pen of the Holy Spirit and reminds the readers that this is not somebody who fell through the cracks of God's providence, for no man has ever fallen through the cracks of God's providence, but that this sickness that this man was experiencing was not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. In other words, this is a man that, though in spite of his sickness, the Lord Jesus loved him very, very deeply. Man, what a picture of how God found you and I. We likewise were sick unto death. We were sin sick unto death. And certainly the physical body would eventually expire because of the effects of sin on humanity. But even worse than that, the spiritual death that is the product of man's lost condition was already in motion and already destined in our life. But though we were sick, the Lord didn't give up on us. He loved us nonetheless. He cared about us. When there was nothing that was lovely or lovable about me, He loved me nonetheless. Lazarus, he was loved by Jesus. And then, of course, there's 
many verses that take place between verse 5 and verse 41. We're skipping over them. I encourage you in your own time to sit and read them. If you've read them a million times, it'll help you to read them that million and first because it's always good. But in verse 41, uh, the Lord Jesus is brought to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. And uh, the Lord Jesus has gone to Bethany and he has met with Mary and Martha and and he has, uh, you know, spoken to them, comforted them, made some remarkable statements about his divinity and so on and so forth. And now the time has come for him to address this dead man, Lazarus. And so verse 41, he's standing outside the tomb and the Bible says this, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was late. Isn't that interesting here? Now Lazarus is known as what? As the dead. You know why? This is just a separate thing. I ain't going to charge you for this, all right? This is this is your 5% off coupon code for the sermon. I'm just throwing this in, all right? Uh, it's because it don't matter what your name is when you're lost. It don't matter what your bank account is when you're lost. It don't matter what your connections are when you're lost. A dead man is a dead man. And so he says... That, that, that they took away the stone from the place where what? Where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Let me say it this way. He was loved by Jesus. But number two, he was lifted from death's grip by the Lord Jesus. This is a remarkable passage and time would fail us really to to try to sound the depths or even move beyond scratching the surface of what's said here. But you think about the remarkable power of the word of God. Uh, the Calvinists would like us to believe that a lost person uh, can't get saved unless God has foreordained them to get saved because they lack the capacity to come to God. And uh, while I would say this, it is certainly true that man in his unregenerate natural condition lacks in and of himself the power to come to God. I wouldn't have come to God on my own. That's why no man can come unto the Father uh, except uh, he draw them. Uh, But you notice here the power of the word of the Lord Jesus. Here's a man who is dead, has no ability to come to Jesus in and of himself. There is a great barrier in between them. And I don't mean the stone, but I mean the veil of death. But the power of the words of Jesus is such that he can reach beyond the veil of death and speak life into a dead man. What a picture that is of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say, preacher, can a lost person save themselves? Heavens, no. Preacher, can a lost person get to God in and of themselves, not in their own strength and energy? But I'll tell you why, how they can get to God is when the saving, transforming, awakening, illuminating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into their life. When they hear the gospel, they can respond to that truth and it gives them the possibility to react and to respond. They're given a word that they can put their faith in and hang their faith upon and it's not any of their own strength or energy and certainly it took God reaching out to them but the means through which he does that is not merely through foreordaining picking some to heaven and some to hell but rather commanding that the gospel be preached to every creature and any and all that will receive the witness of that gospel and respond to it he can say say preacher must God draw them yes but how does he draw them he draws them through the gospel 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the word of Christ reaches beyond the veil of death and speaks to him. And it was enough. The Bible says that even in that dead condition, somehow Lazarus heard. And the Bible says that the dead came forth. What a beautiful picture that is of you and I believing on Jesus Christ. And we didn't do it in our own energy. We didn't do it in our own strength. We didn't help God do it. But when he spoke to our heart, we responded in obedience to the gospel. And we uh, replied when he said, will you trust me? We said, yes, Lord, I'll trust you. He was lifted by Jesus. Notice not only that, verse 44 says this, he that was dead came forth. And what condition was he in? Well, he was bound hand and foot with grave clothes. The vestiges of that dead condition were still on him. Though there was life within there was still grave clothes or death clothes without. And what did the Bible tell us that the Lord did? It says his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. So he was loved by Jesus. He was lifted by Jesus. But then notice that he was loosed by Jesus. In other words, he didn't just say, all right, Lazarus, now you have new life. Go ahead and stumble about with no help from me. I'm glad the Lord doesn't save the sinner and then say sayonara and see in heaven. I'm glad that he indwells us with the Holy Spirit of God and he helps us to be able to walk with him day by day. And those old dead grave clothes, he'll he'll take off of us. He'll loose us from those things and allow us to walk in liberty and in victory. But it doesn't in there. There's one more. Look down at verse number one and two of our text chapter, verse uh, chapter number twelve. The Bible says this in verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Let's say it this way. Not only was he loved by Jesus and lifted by Jesus and loosed by Jesus, but he lived by Jesus. And by that I mean two things. I mean, number one, The only thing that keeps death from wrapping its grip around any of us is the protection of God. And I understand Lazarus would go on to once again die a natural death, but the only reason that he had life within him, the thing that commanded and kept his heart pumping, why his heart had ceased pumping, his brain had ceased firing, his lungs had ceased breathing, What was it that kept them breathing? Because the word of God is true and inerrant, immutable, invincible. And that word had said, come forth. And the power of that word is what secured him and sustained him and protected him. And so he literally lived because the life of Jesus was living through him. But then even beyond that, what did he do? Well, he didn't just live by Jesus. He lived by Jesus. I understand the Lord Jesus didn't have a address when he walked this earth. But you notice the Bible says Lazarus could have been anywhere. But where was he? Man, he was sitting at the table with him. He wanted to be where Jesus was. And so there he sat in fellowship with him. And what a beautiful picture that is of what your Christian life and my Christian life is supposed to be us living through the life of Jesus, it being lived and manifest through us, and then us living in fellowship with him day by day. Such is the story of this man, Lazarus. And when you recognize the the powerful impact of what had happened in his life, it is no wonder that in verse number 9, 
They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also. Of course, they were interested in Jesus and and they wanted to hear his words. But you'd be naive to believe that part of what brought them out of their house wasn't that they wanted to go and see this man Lazarus and see that he was alive. And, you know, it's a reminder to you and I that while it's true, we don't save anyone. Brother Jim made that statement during the prayer request time, and I agree with that. We don't we don't save anyone. Uh, I can't pray them into heaven. I can't beat them into heaven. If I could, I would have done that. Amen. Some of them. But I can't do that. I can't get them saved. I, I know the, sometimes the old uh, mountain folks would say, well, I went down to the church and the preacher saved me. But uh, we understand they didn't mean it in that sense. And you know and I know that I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. They must come to Jesus. But we'd be naive to believe that the testimony of our life does not have some impact either in drawing people or in discouraging people from coming to Jesus. And when we read this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice three groups of people or three truths that are found in this text that I think are worth noticing tonight and thinking about regarding my testimony and yours. Now, remember, we're talking about the testimony of somebody saved by the grace of God and then through obedience to the Spirit of God and the Word of God, allowing the life of Christ to be lived through them and manifest in them. Notice three things tonight. Notice in verse number 9, the spectators that assemble. It says, they came that they might see Lazarus also. Well, why is that? Because he was a good-looking fellow? No, we're not told that. Was it because he was charismatic? We have no reason to believe that's the case. Why did they want to see him? Well, because the next phrase, whom he, whom Jesus, had raised from the dead. Notice two thoughts here. Notice, number one, they wanted to see the Lord. We'd be naive to believe there aren't lost people looking for hope, help, and salvation. I don't know if they would have come only for Lazarus. But by the same token, I don't know if they would have come only for Jesus. The text seemed to suggest that both had equal force and impact in their life. And it is certainly true that the only hope and help there is for mankind is not that they come to you and I. I love Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I was sitting there thinking it whenever they was doing the prayer request. I thought, man, we're blessed. We've got a wonderful church. Worst part about this church is the guy who pastors it. Everything else about it is really just something else. And I was thinking about what a wonderful church that we have. But, you know, it's not them coming to church that's going to save them or transform their life. It is this and this singularly. They've got to come to Christ. And let it be said for you and I that as we point men somewhere, we point them towards Christ. Above and beyond everything else. Say, preacher, is it wrong to invite them to church? No, invite them to church by all means. Encourage them to come to church. Preacher, is, is it wrong to brag on, you know, uh, my life and what the Lord's done in my life? Certainly not. That's a wonderful thing. But at the end of the day, if you're not pointing, pointing them towards Jesus Christ, then you've not done the job of a soul winner. The job is not to get them in church. There's plenty of places all over the world with the name church that are full of dead men's bones. The purpose is to get them to Jesus Christ. You say, but preacher, what about the church? You get them to Jesus, he'll get them to church. Amen. And so uh, we see they wanted to see the Lord. But not only that, they wanted to see the living. They wanted to see what this meant, that this man had been raised from the dead. I don't know what they anticipated. I don't know if they anticipated some strange Frankensteinish monster, barely sentient, barely existing. Uh, I don't know that they were looking for a Baptist like that. Amen. But <laughs> I don't know what they expected. 
I would say this, a lot of people's Christian, oh my, <laughs> stay on track, Toby, it's Wednesday night, you're supposed to be nice to people. Uh, I don't, <laughs> a lot of people's Christian life looks like that monster, amen. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's what they were expecting. I don't know that they knew what they were expecting. I think they knew this. Rumor has it there's a man down there that was dead, and now he's sitting at a table with Jesus. And that's worth seeing. That's worth seeing. Let me tell you this. When the testimony of your life is you were dead in trespasses and sins, on your way to hell, nothing living about you except the the heart that that the fleshy heart that pumped the the lungs that breathed, but no spiritual light or life within you. And God has taken and has as radically transformed you as Lazarus pre Jesus and post Jesus was transformed. I'm talking about as different as the Lazarus in the tomb was from the Lazarus at the table. You were as different before you met Jesus as you are now after Jesus. I'd say this lost men are looking to see the real powerful transformative work of God in people's lives. I'll tell you what they're sick of. They're sick of hypocrites. They're sick of formality. They're sick of dead religion. Uh, they're sick of duplicitousness and selfishness and, and self-advancement. It's true they're not interested in any of that. But you find someone broken and lost, and they're looking for, for proof. They're looking for hope that God could change their life. And so these men came because they, they wanted to see this man that was alive. And I'll tell you, sinners, and I, and I try to keep this in mind as a pastor and for our church, ain't nobody interested in dead church. Not the kind that I want around here, amen? Uh, you say, preacher, who, who draws in, you know, uh, what kind of uh, uh, people does a dead church draw in? Dead Christians. Dead church don't draw in lost folks. They got better things to do with their time. Dead church don't draw in people on fire for the Lord because they can spot it. A mile away. All it draws in is dead Christianity. Nothing else. I'll tell you what lost people are looking for. They're looking for life. They're looking to see proof positive that God can help them and change them and rescue them. And for these men, and undoubtedly there were people that had come there because they too were on the precipice of death. Undoubtedly there were people in that crowd who likewise were sick unto death. And why had they come? They had come to see if it was really true that God could take a man that was perishing and put him at the table healthy and whole. And there are sinners who are likewise sick unto death spiritually. And they're just looking, they're begging, they're desiring, they're craving for someone to show them that God is real, that the gospel is real, that God can change lives. So these people had come because they wanted to see what God had done. I see the spectators that assembled. But notice verse number 10. Not everybody was there because they were excited about what God had done in Lazarus's life. The Bible says, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Notice not only the spectators that assembled, but notice the scoffers that plotted. There were cynics there. These chief priests that had no interest in the power of God. They had denied both the power and the prophets of God. They had denied now the precious son of God. This late in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the nation of Israel had already been 
given over to the doom and destiny of of destruction at Roman hands. They had turned away their Messiah and he had turned from the leaders of the nation to now the common people. And then in this chapter, in a few verses later, he turned even unto some Gentiles that had come unto him. And so these people, destined and doomed, uh, they despised and detested and resented Lazarus for the life that he had. And I'll tell you this, when you live for Jesus Christ, not everybody will be pleased and happy about it. And it's rarely the person with a bottle in their hand or a needle in their arm that's really scandalized. It's normally the people that have built up a house of cards of self-religion and self-righteousness. That when they see the power of God at work in someone's life, it is an indictment against the deadness of their own condition. And so they come to him and they resent him and they plot against him. Notice two things they wanted to do. It's almost laughable. Notice number one, they wanted to return him to the tomb. They said, this is a problem. He was dead. Now he's alive. What can we do? Well, we can kill him again. That seems foolish. I reckon Jesus would have raised him again. I don't know. But uh, they wanted to return him to the tomb that he was in. They wanted to wreck the work of God that had been done in his life. And you know what it makes me think of? You know, you know what people that, uh, that, that are wrong with God or, or sometimes lost people that are haters of God, uh, sometimes uh, carnal people that are, that are in rebellion against God. You, you know, they always resent people living for Christ. And you know what they want? They want to put you back in that tomb with those grave clothes back on you and for you to live the way you did before Jesus loosed you. There's an entire industry of modern Christianity that is devoted to the philosophy of trying to make Christianity as unlike Christ as possible. What are they doing? They're trying to put Christians back in the tomb. They can't take the life from them, but what they can do is put the grave clothes back on them and shut the door behind them and make sure there'll be no problem and no trouble any further or any longer. I'll tell you this, and I... I, The power of God is a disruptive thing in graveyards. Every funeral that Jesus ever went to, he broke up. Dead Christianity has a real problem with Jesus because don't nothing stay dead in his presence. And so when they see this man, they say, what's he doing walking around rejoicing like that? What's he doing sitting at the table in pardon and freedom and liberty and rejoicing and in praise? He ought to be back in the tomb where he belongs. So they wanted to put those grave clothes back on them. And that, by the way, is why there's a great many that when they see you on fire for Jesus Christ, they'll do everything they can to try to undermine, to try to poke holes in your testimony, to try to get you to sin, to try to get you to compromise, try to get you to lower your standards a little bit, tolerate a little more, give in a little more, give out a little more. They'll always try to do something to cut the feet out from under your walk with Christ. What are they doing? Well, they don't like seeing you live that way because they know they ought to be living that way. Uh, And because they know they ought to be living that way, it's a problem for you to live that way. And they need to try to get those grave clothes back on you. They wanted to return him to the tomb. And because of that, or or maybe uh, as a result of that, they wanted to ruin his testimony. They said, it's a problem him walking around like this. People are going to start getting the idea Jesus is the son of God. You can't just let a man raised from the dead go walking around. Somebody's going to notice that. we got to do something about that. 
And so what they really wanted to do was ruin his testimony for Christ. That's why the devil wants to ruin your testimony. That's why carnal Christians want to ruin your testimony. That's why lost people very often that are, that, that hate God, not all lost people are haters of God, but a lot of lost people are. And that's why those that are, that are militant in their opposition to God, they want to ruin your testimony. Uh, why? It's problematic for you to live the life of Christ in this broken world. The devil really hates it. You are working in direct opposition to his design, desires, and wishes. So I see the scoffers that plotted. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, I'm glad they didn't win. Verse 10 says this, Because that by reason of him, of Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. I see the spectators that assembled and the scoffers that plotted, but then I see the salvations that resulted from the testimony of Lazarus. Notice, number one, others were following his steps. It says, by reason of him, many of the Jews went away. Now, what does that mean, went away? Well, away from Judaism. They ceased believing in the sacrifices and instead started looking to the Savior. And when this started to threaten, that's why the chief priests are so upset about this. You notice it does not say the scribes and the Pharisees, though the chief priests certainly were Pharisees, but it calls them chief priests. In other words, those that were engaged actively in the industry of sacrificial worship that had been gutted of its true meaning and significance that did not even faintly resemble what came down off Sinai on two tablets with Moses. These men who were grifters, these men who were charlatans and snake oil salesmen, they saw this as a threat to their industry. Lazarus began to say, hey, you know, what do I need the priests for if I've got a high priest that passeth into the heavens? What do I need the sacrifices for? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What do I need the law for when I have life in Jesus Christ? So they began to walk away. They went away. And then what did they do? Well, they believed on Jesus. That suggests to me that their believing on Jesus was exclusionary of them believing on something else. They went away from what? From believing uh, in the law as a means of, of efficacy to get to God and, and believing on self-righteousness in themselves. They went away from that. And instead, in, in lieu of that, they believed on the Lord. That was a problem. I'd tell you this, uh, that may have been a problem to them, but that's the purpose to God. Jesus Christ is the end of the law to righteousness for everyone that believeth. And in your life and mine, the purpose of us living the life of Christ before lost sinners is that they will heed and depart their wicked ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Let me make a qualifying statement here. Uh, it took the word of Christ to raise Lazarus. None of this is suggesting that a lifestyle approach to evangelism divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Uh, we see earlier in the book of John, in John chapter number four, there's a woman comes to Jesus and Jesus begins to tell her the truth. And he doesn't perform any miracles unless you want to suggest his omniscience was a miracle. I don't think that'd be a, a right perspective. He doesn't do any miracles. But he just speaks the truth to her. Now, if ever there was somebody that could say, I don't have to witness, I'll just live it. You'd think it'd be the perfect, immaculate son of God. But he didn't. He witnessed to this woman. Likewise, let me say this, that a big portion of the testimony of our witness is not just in what we say with our words, 
but what we say with our walk. It's not just what comes from our lips, but it's what comes from our life. And there will certainly be people that you, like the woman at the well, meet in passing who will never have the the ability to watch and observe the way that you live. And even they will make judgments based upon how you in that moment conduct yourself. But they won't be able to watch you for a month or a year or ten years or a whole lifetime. But you and I also have people in our life that we do know long term. And you better believe that our life has a lot to say to them about what we believe about Jesus Christ. When they saw life in him, They said, you know, I bet if Jesus could do that for him, I bet he could do that for me. And so they said, I've been trusting all these other things, but I'm going to start trusting in Jesus because if he could do it for Lazarus, he could do it for me. And they put their faith in him and God changed their lives. You see, here's the truth. They must come to Jesus. They have to come to Jesus. Nothing has been accomplished if they won't come to Jesus. But sometimes part of them coming to Jesus is them coming to see in your life what Jesus has done for you. I wonder if we're living the testimony that would please God day by day and be a witness to a lost world. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity, if God spoke to your heart, to meet him in the altar. and Let him just lead and have his will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation and may it magnify and glorify The only one that's worthy of it, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's in his name we ask it.